0: Live, uh, doing another episode of our Regenerative Landscapes podcast, and something really exciting today. We have a special guest. We have Nadine from Blackfly Environmental Services, and uh, Nadine has. Well, actually, I don't even know how long have you been with Blackfly.
1: Uh, we started in September of 2017, so we're going to be
0: five this year. The, the company's going to be five. So the company's real- going to be five. Wow. So it's real- <laughs> So that's weird. I actually must have known you, at least some of you guys almost from your inception then and just not even known. <laughs> yeah, it would have been actually me.
1: I like yeah. met you a few times. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and then um, not to get too far into it, but so how did this all come about? How did how did Blackfly come about? Did you have an idea with with somebody else? And are there more than one of you that are the pillars of the company? I know it's really expanding quite a lot. So that's really nice to see.
1: Yeah. So actually, it's me and my partner, Jennifer Goss, that started the company. Um, But we didn't intend to do that. Like we actually (laughs) went we went to university together, but didn't know it. Like we were in some of the same classes and never met. Um, And then, you know, we graduated and we went off on our merry ways to save the world and both ended up at Stantec together um, for a while. And then we both left there and kind of didn't really, you know, just talk in passing as friends. And then we actually both kind of were getting out of the environmental industry. It slowed down a bit and kind of get disillusioned working for some bigger companies. And we were both kind of like dipping our toes in non-environmental streams of work. And I was living with Jen for a bit. And one day I was like... We could do our own, you know. We could probably start our own company, and then we can do whatever we want. And she was like, "That's an interesting idea." And so we did.
0: Nice. Sound familiar, Dan and Kevin?
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> it's amazing how many times this parallels. Uh, that's really cool. And I—I I mean, I've seen the video. I totally get that—that that cute little song, uh, why the whole <laughs> the black fly name. But maybe you can explain a little bit, or um. Lead people to your website so people can uh, check it out for themselves.
1: Okay. So our website, www.blackflyenvironmental.com, um, there's uh, a video from the Canadian film. um the film board? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's actually, it used to be like on TV when we're like little kids, um, and it's the Blackfly song, and it's about working in <laughs> North Ontario io, and how bad the bugs are out there. And Jen and I both working, you know, in the fields for a lot of years, especially up North, like, you know, closer to Fort McMurray and stuff, just being eaten alive by black flies. Um, I know that part of my field garb is a very, um, very important to me um, bug jacket that I wear everywhere. And um, you'd think that you wouldn't want to name your company after something as, as insistent and in (laughs) your face as a black fly. But I think that, also that that's kind of who, who we are, you know, environmentally We're we're there, we're in it, never go away. So yes, you're persistent. Was, <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, so that's what, um, actually Jen was, it was her idea to name the company Blackfly. Nice. Um, yeah. So
0: no, I re- I really like that. It's, uh, it's, it's funny because I, I have dealt with quite a few different companies over my short existence in the industry. And, um, I, I have never forgotten your name, right? Versus some of the other ones, it's like green, environmental, something uh, like they're they're more generic, right? So it's it's hard to uh, remember. But nope, black Flag. Well Our
1: name and our, our, name and our so. logo, we were kind of going for that like that wow factor, like mm-hmm. you know, like oh what? And then our business cards when we first designed them, like the front's pretty generic, like, it's our logo and our name, and then the back was just a big picture of a fly, like, like whoa. <laughs> uh, so
0: You should have made them personalized so each one could have had a fly splatter on it, right? <laughs> That's well,
1: we've been talking <laughs> about about some uh, fancy, uh, you know, in-office uh, dinnerware that we can have, like, okay. little flies in the bottom of every cup or
0: something. Nice. Actually, resin's a big thing now. You probably could do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's making, me, making my creative juices start going. Very cool. <laughs> um, so, I guess, before Blackfly, what... What do you think was the pinnacle moment where you decided you wanted to explore the ecology route yourself? Uh,
1: well, I uh, I grew up on a farm, quite rural, like out between Edson and Whitecourt, like west of Edmonton. Um, we had like a ranch, and so I spent all of my time outside as a child, as was expected. Like get out of the house; you're not allowed to be in here. And then, so I went to university and went into environmental and conservation sciences at the U of a. And just, I love plants and I love being outside. I love animals, but everyone was going into, to be a, you know, wildlife ecologist because everyone wants to work with bears and wolves and cougars. And, um, I had one professor specifically, um, Dr. Bork, and also um, Barry Irving, that are very passionate rangeland ecologists. And they kind of strong-armed me into being a vegetation ecologist. And I was on the range team at the U of A, which is a competitive plant ID team. Nice. Oh, I
0: know yeah.
1: you can't, you can't <laughs> get much cooler than that. I know it's crazy. It makes me excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so um, I went to like a, the – the um annual general meeting of the rangeland ecology uh group in spokane washington and anyway that's being on the range team is actually what got me my job at stantec because there were other range teamers that are were higher up at stantec and and that's that's how i got my first job um so yeah and then it was just field work from there for until we started blackfly
0: (laughs) nice i just sorry when you talk about the um the plant idea i just imagine that there's these these competitors on teams and they have buzzers and they have to <laughs> to name out the plant i don't know you, know, is- you would you would think that it, essentially
1: what it is is um there's the there is actually like a it's a plant mount bell ringer test, like an exam. <laughs> and it's universities from Canada, the States and Mexico all compete. And you literally, there's a room with a hundred plant mounts and you get 30 seconds at each mount and you need to come up with the family genus species, whether it's annual or perennial and whether it's introduced or native mm. and you get 30 seconds at each plant. And it's, and then there's also like, a the ERMI is the Undergraduate Range Management exam, which is like a general knowledge exam. So it actually is exactly what you think it is.
0: <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now I'm imagining I, in, my, in my past life, I was a um, uh, KJ entertainment host. And I could imagine putting an angle on this into some of the, uh, the stage games where it's like, all right, now we're going to go into the uh, free round. So you just throw a bunch of plant material in a pile and say, go. And then they have to identify as many out of them as they can or something. I don't know. That's crazy. Wow. But yeah. No, that's- no, one,
1: no one will think you're cooler than when you tell them that you're on a competitive plant ID team. <laughs> Everyone, Everyone's
0: really jealous when you say that. Well, if, if nothing else, there's shock value there. So you, people can't deny that they're not interested. Like, please tell me more. Right. What does that even mean? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was, I was never smart enough to get on the range team. I was just always like,
0: what? i was were fine
2: you? with just taking the normal whatever route well, but yeah well, you it can took never be soil the right so.
0: so were you on the dirt team
2: <laughs> no 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 i did take uh that court uh barry irving's course but just yeah i was just never <laughs> i'm just like yeah I'll, I'll sit this one out i don't know it's just It's a lot. It's you put a lot of work and effort into memorizing and making sure you know yourself.
1: Didn't see the sun for months just like hiding in that the the um the room where they had herbarium (laughs) in the the basement of ASI. (laughs) Yeah,
2: sometimes I hang out there, but yeah, it's just like (laughs) just focusing on the regular one and with all the other people that just like, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not going to memorize all this stuff, guys. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's hilarious. Um, Maybe you can tell me or all of us actually a little bit about um, Blackfly, what it's about. I know it's an ecological services company. What are some of the services? What, what do you do?
1: Well, um, Jen and I, funny enough, are both vegetation ecologists. So we're we're plant folks, uh, wetlands, rare plant surveys, like ecological land classification. I do more soils than Jen does. I, I love me a good soils pit. But um, <laughs> our company and and like the folks that we've hired, we've really expanded. Like we still do the vegetation stuff, but honestly, the bulk of our staff now uh, we do a lot of aquatics work. So fish salvages and water quality monitoring. Um we have a lot of folks that like touching and toes and feeling frogs. So we do like amphibian salvages. Um <laughs> touching toes and feeling <laughs> frogs. <I laughs> yeah. <have that>. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a good team of bird brains. So we do nest sweeps, point counts, like all the bird stuff. Um so yeah, it's kind of it's funny how it expanded outside of like what Jen and I um, grew up doing um, throughout our careers. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we support everything from construction monitoring to, you know, new development of, of either residential or industrial sites. Um, we also work with First Nations communities, um, a lot of pipelines right now, as everyone's aware, I'm sure. Um, yeah, just it's, it's so interesting, like, the everything that happens, like pretty much every kind of job out there, that's development orientated needs, some
0: environmental support. Nice. Well, do you find that, um, your, your company and your people are just kind of going where the demand takes you? Or do you find that, um, like, do you, do you just say we will take any job in this industry and we will just find a way to make it work? Or do you actually specifically say, we are trying to cover this area and we, we won't be taking on things outside of our, area of expertise, because it stretches our resources too thin. And uh, there's some things that you have to say no to, or do you just turn around and say, we'll take it all. And then you just find (laughs) ways to, whether we hire a different person or consult with somebody or whatever to make it work.
1: No, we've definitely got like our uh, professional boundaries. I'd say that we stick to. We um, like to say we, we don't do dirty dirty work. We don't do dirty dirt. What? We don't. We, <laughs> we don't. We don't do it. <laughs> um, we primarily do pre-disturbance or like during construction support. We don't do reclamation work. Like we don't mm. deal with um, putting sites back if they've if there's been a spill, but. But we do spill support in that like we do um, wildlife deterrence support for spills or we will do an assessment of like the wetlands and water courses involved with the spill. But we don't we don't like dig things up and we don't we don't do dig and dumps. We don't deal with contaminated, like phase ones and phase twos that come along with contaminated sites. We don't do that kind of work. Um, And then. There is uh, a lot of erosion sediment control work, which we do, but when it comes to actually like some of the really specific plans, we have a, a very large trusted team of, of subcontractors we work with, like engineers, um, pests, uh that we, we rely on and also like the companies that do the dirty work that we don't do. So, um, you know, like being all of our people um, are either professional biologists or working towards that a professional agrologists. So we're all bound by um, whatever practice areas you've been approved to work under. So we do definitely, we, I mean, obviously someone calls us like, can you do this? We always want to do our best to be able to say yes, but if it's outside of what we do, then we can either, bring in um that expert or you know send those folks in the right direction
0: yeah so it sounds like really the industry is very very deeply connected and you've got lots of contacts and lots of um good referrals and also others that you know what like you say whether it's subcontracting or or however where when you can collaborate um so if if somebody's got a problem yes it's they can they can contact you in one way or another you'll kind of get to the bottom of it but it might mean a bit of outsourcing or or, or collaboration or or whatever um mm-hmm. but because um you know the then like i say the industry is very connected it's uh sounds like no matter which way you look at it you'll you'll help them get the the job done and get them on the right path so
1: yeah it's it's definitely a small world so yeah,
0: yeah. well it's it's funny because i'm i'm meeting people Now in this realm that I knew from past lives and, uh, you know, different things that I was doing, but because it doesn't matter whether it's animals, plants or whatever, like you say, everything seems to be connected. So it's like, oh, I'm seeing you again now. You're just wearing a different shirt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So So many hats, so many hats. (laughs) But
0: it it does all come back to, I think the bottom line is is the environment, the ecology, um, trying to do something good for the earth. And um, I guess based on that, what are your current perceptions on what is going on in the uh, ecological industry and the ecological world forefront right now?
1: Well, I, I mean, Jen and I always like to say, like, um, don't call me an environmentalist. I'm an environmental scientist because those are two yes. very different things. And you are people... Correct. Yeah, like, I mean, not all the time, but people are like, oh, you're an environmentalist. Like, well, calm down. Like, <laughs> like yeah, let clarify.
0: <laughs> the connotation of the tree hugger that will chain themselves and get arrested by, you know, there's, a, there's an extremist group for sure, but you are more of the, the, based on science, middle of the road, trying to, because you've got to navigate between um, various stakeholders, meaning everybody from those extreme environmentalist types all the way through to Hey, you know what? We've got to eat. We've got to have places to live. So there's going to be everything from home builders, oil and gas companies, the government. And it's almost like uh, playing mediator a bit, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, I mean, there's a, like, there like that line there, you know, where, where um, I think that a lot of us, you go to university or school and you're like, I'm going to graduate and save the world. Yeah. Um, and, and then you get out into the industry and you're like, well, I am, you know, I'm doing a rare plant survey so they can put a plant site here, or I'm, you know, fishing um, frogs out of this puddle so they can build a pipeline. And, and it can, I think sometimes when a lot of younger people graduate and start into consulting, they get like the, like almost disillusioned. Like they're like, we're not, we're, we're enablers. And I like to tell those people, well, no, because there are regulations in place to make sure that the work that's happening is done in the most ecologically minded way it can be. And it's our job to make sure that our clients understand that and do the best job that they can. Because if you're not the one out here, you know, doing a good job and doing your best to make sure that you have delineated the wetland properly, while well, maybe the person coming out behind you to do it for a different company doesn't care as much as you do and doesn't do as good of a job as you do. So I like to think that, The better job I do, the more responsibly all the work that's being done gets done. Exactly.
0: And I think it also um, reflects on if we do a good job and we're we're educating people, whether it's down at the public level, up to the government level, wherever, the more educated they become and the more they realize the importance of these things, the restrictions, the laws, they will start to change more to become more of a, you know, what our our vision might be for the industry as a whole versus having to step back and like you say, doing some of the things, but maybe not as grand as you uh, originally envisioned. Um, Well, I also
1: think like, I I really feel that people, it's getting, I think it's getting worse every year. People are so apathetic like you know they're like well the sky is falling or something i can do about it and i'm like well Mm -hmm. did you try like Mm -hmm. you know there's we we got to vote every every time there's an election if you don't like something you know find the person write the letter do the thing i mean don't chain yourself to a tree in front of a dozer i don't think that's a good (laughs) idea but but you know you if you have to uh put the legwork in to see the change that that you want to you have to be the change you want to see in the world as like you know as as whatever that sounds very corny but that. That's the truth. And people I think get are very quick to get apathetic and and just be like, Well, what I'm doing doesn't matter because this is gonna happen anyway. And I think that like our company and and, like the work that we do very passionate about making sure that we do the best job that we can do to support and uphold our environment. Not that I think that everything that's happening or every direction things are going in is, is the right one. But you know, you gotta do your part to try to make the world a better place. So yes, yeah. awesome. and I mean
0: at least at least trying is better than doing nothing. And I think what Dan and Kevin and I talk about frequently is um sure, maybe one person can't change the entire world, but if everybody did the little part that they were capable of doing, that was in within their grasp, that cumulative change can be huge. So this is why we're proponents of hey, just plant a native plant. Get out and and uh Get involved with a, a, a local ecological group. Do, like just doing these small things, it's, it's not so insurmountable for a person to do. And so it can lead to other things, but also the cumulative effect can be huge, right? I totally agree. Um, and I think
2: part of that, too, is like the influence that comes from those little things, too, that you do. Because it's, you can do the little thing like, you know, planting a native plant or doing, yeah, joining like an ecological group. But it's also the other thing of, well, if you can even influence one other person, I think you're doing a great thing and really helping to contribute this whole idea of trying to be ecologically friendly and trying to (laughs) make the world a little bit of a better place in that way too.
0: Exactly, so, it's like being yeah. that uh, drop of water in the in the pond or the lake. I mean, it's one tiny drop, but there's that ripple effect, right? Yeah. And it and you'd be surprised how many other people it reaches. Maybe not directly through you, but indirectly. So, um, another thing I always tell people too is always be on your best behavior. Be the best that you can be. Do the most that you feel you can for the environment or or whatever it is, um, because you never know who's watching, who's listening, who's paying attention, and Little things can have big influence. You just never know when or where, right? So, so very cool. Um. All right. For the, uh, I guess that we were talking about currently. I guess what are some future predictions you you might see uh, feel that are coming, Nadine? In that, uh, okay, here's where we're at. Can you kind of see what the ecological industry could expect? Maybe going five to 10 years from now, and then even longer term as to uh, increases, decreases, which sectors, uh, what kinds of things might be happening uh, locally and nationally and possibly even around the world?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think we all are aware that in our country specifically, there's this interesting push coming from somewhere east of here. Uh, to bring an end to your gas powered vehicle and everyone can plug it in. Um, that's, I think this, this really big push to, for, you know, electric cars, renewable energy and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, which I am in agreement (laughs) with some things and not with others. Um, but I think that, you know, these, like the big pipeline projects that were happening right now, um, are you know they're going to be wrapping up here soon, and um, you know when I first started um, in ecology, I had these massive pre-disturbance assessment jobs for a lot of um, like SAG D, like the, um, the the steam um, powered underground or. Uh, um oil sands extraction. But that was that was a big thing. And I did massive programs. So you don't see those anymore. And right now everyone's, you know, the next few years just falling over each other to work on all these pipelines. And and once that wraps up, I think it's being able to put pipelines in um across the country, across provinces, across borders is going to be a thing of the past here. It already kind of is, um, I think. Um so that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, the electric car thing, um, I find interesting. Like, you know, in Alberta, we are very heavy oil and gas and, and coal as well. And um, I would maybe be a little bit on a soapbox if I said that I didn't think that that was a good idea. <laughs> um, the electric car thing, I don't think it's a feasible solution for the problems that we have now. Um, I say that especially as someone who lives rurally um, I, I have power bills that could make people cry. And, um, you know, that I, I worry just with the, the technology that we have and, and the built in obsolescence in our electronics and things, the rare earth metal mining that's happening around the world, that's going to come back to be a, a bigger issue than I think we are accepting right now as a digital world um, because it's not here we don't see it in the backyard right like we do with the oil sands and with oil and gas it's it's a problem somewhere else and uh i think with covid and like the supply chain shortages we didn't realize how dependent we are on on that kind of stuff and that worries me a bit
0: um so yeah i don't (laughs) yeah no um um, i think uh i'm not sure I i know it was very nice of you i'm glad that you got to listen to a few of our episodes but it was funny that um uh, Dan and Kevin, you remember we were talking about EV cars actually a while back, and mm-hmm. uh, even something like the cold effect on them. Um, it's not as simple as saying, sure, we we understand that we need to look for a more ecological energy source and a, a different way of uh, mobilizing people, but in certain locales, uh, even the simple thing of the cold can be a big issue with the EV cars, and so it's like you say it's not the cure-all just to say okay everybody's going to use battery-powered cars it's it's a little bit more complex than that there's pros and cons to every every side that you look at so
1: yeah of course
0: oh go ahead with the
1: ev cars too like i mean like the the operation of those aside like if you are living rurally like we do a lot of us in alberta and you you just learn to to live with the rolling power outages that we have, um, and the strained grid that we have already, and the insane cost of power for people that that don't live in a center like a population center. I just don't see how how that um, that solution is is going to work for those kinds of folks. It, it's kind of a scary thought to think that you know in a few years um, they really want to have. EV cars be the all that there is I don't really I'm not I, I'm not understanding how how that's going to uh play out for for a, a large part of our country
0: um like, yeah yeah I, I think um I think what we've, we've spoken about before on the show is it's not going to be a one thing that that fixes everything it's going to have to be a, a combination effort so maybe um I, I'm not sure but maybe things like the hydrogen. Uh, aspect or I I'd don't know maybe that. maybe something. some something about um the it might sound corny but going to the back of the future okay we're going to uh incinerate our garbage and maybe that will give us the energy I, I don't know but I just feel like there's going to be a multifaceted way of approaching the problem and not every solution going to work the same in every place or for every person either so it's going to be a um kind of an educated shop around and and figure out what works for your situation too. Well, but, and um, even
1: like that, like the vehicle solutions, like, you know, with the diesels and bringing in that DEF to try to, you know, help with the emissions and stuff. Well, that's a great solution somewhere warm, but you know, ask anyone who's bought a diesel recently um, yeah. when it gets cold and then you're in limp mode. It's just, it's like, I think it's awesome that um, there's so much innovation out there and, and trying to find a way to make sure that we're not all just, you know, huffing fumes um, in the future. But um, I, I think that... Uh, I think that there's an assumption that people like, like me, you know, that work in the, in the environment industry, that I must be a proponent of solar and wind and
0: electric cars and, and all the things. And it's just, it's not, it's not true. <laughs> well, there's um, more to it than that, right? Like there, like I say, it's multifaceted. There's, there's pros and cons for everything. And um, another thing we've been talking about a lot lately is, you know, make sure you're educated with uh, good scientific sources So that you can make better decisions and also hopefully, whatever it is, whether make better products, better services, whatever it is that that helps more ecologically, because like you say something with the EV cars. Well, what about those batteries? What about the mining? What about there? Is that leaving more of a carbon footprint than traditional oil and gas? I'm not sure. But at the same time, these are things to look into before you just jump on the bandwagon and make those calls.
1: Yeah, and actually, it's interesting, like to you know, to hear the different perspectives of folks. Uh, Jen did a podcast, I think, about like a month ago or so, um, with the Alberta Enterprise Group um, with Danielle Smith, and they were talking about um development you know in alberta and and there was a really interesting question that she asked jen she said why are wet like what are wetlands for like why are they important besides just being a barrier to development and that is that really fun um uh, like you know that that coin that gets flipped when you when you do work in the environmental industry to be like well remember what happened in calgary like you're like the flooding <laughs> it's not just in calgary it's all over the place like yeah. you know um although we obviously support development that's kind of what we do as a company um also you know to educate people to be like listen you farmer joe have a wetland in the middle of your hay field and you might want to get that extra acre of hay off of it but do you realize that in a drought year that wetland is going to keep your hay fields you know more lush and green than everyone around you and then when it's flooding that'll hold water and maybe keep your hay field from being underwater but you know, that, that attitude in a lot of places to, well, this is just a barrier to development, not understanding the repercussions of what happens when you don't take care of those ecological services that are being provided by the things around you, which is, I mean, we are working right now. You're asking about the the future of, of the ecological um, services world and flood attenuation and flood mitigation is such a hot topic right now. And, and from our perspective, you know what we do is we explore historical wetland loss to understand you know well this is flooding here well why well up you know upstream of here you've lost 90 percent of your wetlands and the land can no longer hang on to the water so it rains and you get sheet run and then your town's underwater and so it's it's so much harder to have to go back and rectify what we've done than to just not make those mistakes in the first place yeah. and
0: preventative and so, rather than treatment, right?
1: Exactly. And so that's something actually that I, we're seeing a ton more of as a company is, is working with municipalities are really big and like some cities about how do we, how do we go back and, and, and gain, you know, bring these <clears throat> water holding capacity, these landscapes back now that we've lost so much of, of what we had and even, uh, um, on top of that, too, um, trying to repair the fisheries in Alberta because of the massive impact uh, of all of the you know the roads and and railroads across our province that there's the barriers to fish passage is is really quite sad um, if you. Uh, spend any time um, working you know in in the backwoods of of Alberta and you just see these hanging culverts and or there are no culverts or you know blocked passages so that's another thing is is stream health um, and and fish passage restoration throughout the province is is another thing I think is going to be really big in the future well it already is getting big now but
0: well not nice but you know (laughs) hopefully nicer for the fish in their future right (laughs) yes so um, and actually I'm a uh, I'm not an expert by any means, but I am a fishing enthusiast, and people think, oh, well, fishing, you, then you must be against the fish. Uh, generally, hunters and fishers are actually more conservative, uh, conservation-minded because if they want to be able to continue doing these things in the future, they know they've got to do what they can to maintain and help repopulate those um those species right well exactly i mean ducks
1: unlimited entire purpose for for being um around is is because the folks that hunt ducks wanted to make sure that they took care of the wetlands and places where the ducks were so they can continue to do that and ducks has done a lot of work you know for so many years preserving wetlands and flyways and things like that and that is that is their like base goal or why they started anyway
0: yeah so people have to uh keep those keep those things in mind and and uh not forget about that either uh okay pretty cool oh um so on on a individual level because we're talking about doing doing things on a grand scale might seem a little bit out of reach to somebody versus a company or something um what do you think are some key things people could do just as their own person with no particular group or anything to back them up just some little things that they could do um, as individuals to help regenerate our, our landscapes or do, do something good for the environment?
1: Well, like you're saying, I think, like, educating yourself is probably the most important thing that you can do. Like, um, you know, before you buy that wildflower mix or b- before you let that wild boar go out of your pen, understanding <laughs> the repercussions that's going to have on where you live is really important. Like, you know, there's this big push like save the bees and then you could order these wildflower packets from like, you know, honey nut Cheerios. Well, cool, but those aren't native plants to where we are. And so are you actually helping? Like um, if you want to save our bees, then you need to know what the native plants are in our area to support them. Maybe don't, you know, mow your lawn and kill all the dandelions when they first come up It just, you know um, understanding how there's actually it's a really cool book i should i'll find it and i'll send you the link to it but it was it's about how to make your yard like um an oasis for things like butterflies and bats and bees and it's like little things that you can do to help your little bit of space however big it may be um to support um that you know the the flora and fauna of your of your area is pretty cool um and i think too it's interesting to me as a society i think um big industries have done a really good job of um putting a lot of guilt on the shoulders of the consumer to be like well if you don't want to see plastic pop bottles then don't buy them if and recycle and if you don't want to see plastic clamshells in your strawberries and don't buy them like it's it all they like pass that blame down to the individual. And, and I do agree that you as an individual, when you go grocery shopping, like if there, if you can buy tomatoes in the open, don't buy the ones in the clamshell and bring your own bags and do all that kind of stuff. But also, um, not everybody has the financial capacity to make those more expensive choices because generally that's what that kind of boils down to. You choose less packaging or being able to refill your own stuff. And sometimes that can be more expensive. But I think that as a society, we need to hold the companies responsible for giving us those options more accountable. Like I think it's interesting. Um, is very interesting to me that water In our country is owned by all of us it is a public resource and yet we allow big companies to bottle it and then sell it to us and and we we accept that as that makes sense like you know that's just part of everyday life why though because we let it happen we let it be that way Mm -hmm. so you know when you see that your that spring water was bottled in bamf you should ask yourself but why is a company making that much money to sell me something in a bottle that is going to cause problems and it's a resource that actually belonged to me before they put it in the bottle? Like, I think that people as a whole have forgotten the the sway we have when we're all come together because of something we want to see change in the world for so if all of us wrote to pepsi you know if the whole the whole province was like no we're not buying you know this anymore they would have to make that change because they they've tried to pass the blame down to us so i think that every individual has the ability to push it back to where it came from and and demand
0: change from oh, yeah. from those those places i totally agree but um I won't get into specifics, but obviously based on current events, I will tell people though, um, it, there's definitely nothing wrong with, um, making your concerns known, actively protesting, um, trying to educate others as long as it's scientifically based. Don't just say, well, my cousin Joe says, and then take it verbatim. That's the truth because of course. it may not be, but, you do have power through legal means. You can contact your MP. You can um, sign petitions. You can be a part of groups. But please, again, the key here is do it legally. This whole situation we've got going on in our country right now, um, I don't have a problem with people protesting, but it's the methodology behind it. Uh, breaking the law is not cool. So. Well, and like,
1: I think, like you say, your MP, I think my MLA must be just so happy I live in his district. I, I am definitely that person. Like, I am like, well, there's not enough recycling at my dump here. Like, why isn't there access to this? Like, yeah, if, if you don't let it be known what you're thinking and what you want to see. It's not going to happen. You can't just sit back and be like, oh, I wish that there was this and not, and not like you say, make sure that someone knows that. And we do live in a country where you can express yourself and, like, like you're saying lawfully, um, free speech and all that. And like, you know, politely always never, never in a way that belittles anybody else. But, you know, if you are at your local transfer station and you see somebody whipping their cardboard into the big bin, maybe you can be like, Hey man, did you know that there's a bin over there? Like, let's, let's be awesome and work together and like recycle and (laughs) reduce reuse, recycle. Like we learned in elementary school. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I find um, if, if you are approaching people, um, never accuse, never belittle, never, never talk down or never try to just directly tell them to change. Um, I find a much better way is just provide a little piece of information and a back, be able to back it up with a with a source like a, a proper scientific source, and also propose questions. I find questions are very inert because if if you turn around and say, "So do you know where these plastic bottles go to after they leave the recyclers or something?" Right? Versus saying, "Oh well, you, you know, you shouldn't just be buying plastic at all because half of it doesn't get to a recycling facility." And that, you know, uh, that that's, afraid, yeah. that's that's not a that's not a good way to go about it. But if if you just start to be a little more, um, uh, less in somebody's face, I guess, and and ask ask questions and getting people to think. I think that's a big thing. I hate to say it, but our uh, our population, especially going down to the the school level, um, we're becoming more lemming like. Like we just take things verbatim that this is what it is because we read it or because somebody said it. So there is nothing wrong. With questioning things and going to do the research to find out if these things are true or if there's a different answer, but again, just go through the right means to do it but anyway, that's enough of uh, my soapbox on that topic <laughs> um, so on a on a different note, so let's say somebody's looking at getting into the ecological field as a, a profession, like you know right now there's lots going on out there, lots of things people feel they could do and make a difference um and possibly the work scenes increasing, uh, so what is maybe the number one piece of advice or a few tips that you could give somebody looking at getting into the industry of uh, what their what their their best things to do might be
1: well i um, I mean I came from like lived in the country and then I went to the the uva and and did it that route to get into the ecological industry but um having now like run a business for a while and 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 hiring folks um uh field skills like the ability to if you want to be a field ecologist you need to be able to be outside so being familiar with what that is um just ha- like field skills are such a big thing. And I find that my experience at the university anyway was that's not really where you learn that. So I have, I think that the program that Nate has um, is such a great program and it's cool because you can do those two years of, of technical schooling, get more of those hands-on skills. Like they do some really cool um, field stuff in Nate. And then you can still go and take your last two years at the U of A and still end up with that, with that degree. Um just those practical skills um, are are very valuable because when you get hired by a company like like Stantec or us or whatever. Um, we're not going to just expect that, that, you know, you know how to touch toads right off the get go. Like we're going to train you um, in, in those technical skills, but being able to train somebody in you know, how to walk in a straight line, um, which way is North um, walking 10 K a day, driving a truck, trailering, that kind of stuff. It's, it's so much easier to be an adept field ecologist. If your field skills like those being outside skills are, are there already. So I really, if I was to do my education over again, I probably would have started at Nate, um, with, with their technical program. And, um, just like, like you're talking before about, about, uh, like educating yourself. Well, I mean, there's so many opportunities to volunteer, um, and in like, you know, around the city or other places. So get involved with, um, you know, like the Wildlife hospital, or even um, you know, if in your summer jobs, like I was a weed inspector <laughs> at a county for a while. So just being able to get outside and exercise those those skills is really valuable um, because I found that you know if we do end up hiring somebody who has never driven a pickup before and has never really been outside, it's such a steep learning curve, because now you're not just having to learn, you know, how we fill out a data sheet from the things that you learned at school, but you're having to learn how to just be outside and how to get there, which can be overwhelming, I think, for, for, for sure. a lot of
0: people. Well, and especially since, um, I mean, things are changing a bit, but the whole, uh, a lot of times I see uh, on, the, in the media or TV, Hollywood in particular, they tend to glamorize the, the fun side of things, right? So everybody thinks, I want to be a wildlife biologist because we go out and we have our videographer following us and we're doing a National Geographic thing, studying caribou <laughs> or whatever, and it's all pictures and we get to see the wildlife and everything's great. But the, the behind the scenes is, like you say, they're fighting off the black flies. They're out there in snow, rain, wind, sleet, you know, you name it. Um, possibly staying out in strange places overnight, uh, having to go into remote locations forget about maybe having access to your phone or the internet or whatever um lots of miles logged just hiking so if you think you're going to get driven around to everywhere well you have another <laughs> thing coming so yeah just ha- just having that uh that like you say that basic I guess uh backwards common sense is kind of what I'd call it I guess but um yeah
1: and like I think too when people like I mean I'm not saying that not everyone gets to but like when I was in school, everyone wanted to be a wildlife ecologist because of the big, cool keystone species that you could work with. But, um, you know, then graduating and going to do wildlife work, it was mainly about mice and poop, like (laughs) catching, (laughs) catching rodents and doing like those kind of surveys or track surveys or like count, like taking pictures of poop and being like, yeah, this is evidence that there was a bear here. Um, and, or like, you know, it might sound exciting like things like electrofishing like oh cool like you know we're gonna go electrofish and catch like these cool species and then you spend you know two weeks catching thousands of stickleback and wondering why it even matters anymore like it's it's not yeah like there's amazing days there's great days there's such cool things that happen but there's also a lot of not a lot of like accidentally falling through the top of a floating fen and being wet up to your armpits and, but still having to hike all day or, you know, having your bear spray go off and spray up your back. I've had that happen before. Um arguing through st- getting stuck. Yeah. Winching all the things. And um uh, I guess being able to come into the industry with a, just a can do happy attitude because you also end up working with so many different people. So the ability to just be able to, you just live the golden rule and just be um, amicable and and just happy to be there. It makes the job so much easier because if you get dropped by a helicopter and the weather changes, it doesn't come back. You're gonna want to get
0: along with the person you're spending the night with in the bush. <laughs> yeah. So be uh, just be uh, flexible and able to roll with it, right? Because be you be a nice human. That's all, all your yeah, and all your all your training. It doesn't matter what you have, but chances are something's going to happen and it's not going to work to your advantage. And you just got to troubleshoot and figure out a way (laughs) yeah and like i I
1: think too like i mean it's not everyone and it's not everyone's experience but i know when i first started for like the first what like well even a couple like 2019 is probably when i finally stopped but from may to november as a vegetation ecologist i wasn't home like i would get i've been working 12 and twos or whatever you know be home like four to five days a month from may to november um and and that's a lot and there's a lot of you know burnout that comes with that and everything like that but being a field ecologist is really being married to being on the road a lot of the time um and and I think a lot of people um might not when they you can graduate realize that if that's what you want to be and you want to get that experience you might need to put on your walking boots because you're not going to be home for a while
0: yeah that's good to know um, okay on the other side let's say somebody whether it's a private landowner or a business or government or whatever um let's say they're looking at getting uh utilizing some ecological services um what kinds of things should they look at to determine if number one do they even possibly need them and number two if they feel like they're going to go down that route um What are some tips for what they should look for in an ecological service company or consultant um, to help them decide who to go with or or what they need? Um, So whether it's key questions or red flags or or even just to know, hey, these guys might be the right ones.
1: Um yeah, well, I mean, I think something that we see most often like for for private landowners, like just, you know, the mom and pop businesses or even just someone privately like who owns a piece of land or wants to buy one, um real estate agents are not ecologists. And I think <laughs> <Really>? that, <laughs> and I think that 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 there's this really big misconception that if you own it, it's yours. And if you buy it, it's yours. And that's really unfortunate and a lot of people end up in a bad way because that's, I mean, in Alberta, especially, you know, like you own the land it belongs to me. Well, if it's wet, it probably doesn't. And, um, and so I would say to anyone like a private landowner, if you want to do something on your property and, or buy a piece of property and part of it's wet, you should probably call someone like us or another smaller environmental company, because if you, don't understand the rules around who owns what because the crown owns it if it's wet. That's kind of the long and the short of it. Wetland, stream, river, whatever. If it's wet, it probably doesn't belong to you. And being able to reach out to a company like us to be like, hey, I'm thinking of putting a shop here. What do you think? We can tell you first, hey, man. Like there's a whole process behind that because counties are starting to watch more like Parkland mm-hmm. County has their satellite imagery ability now is wild, like within inches of being able to tell what's going on on your land. So the, the days of, of shoot, shovel and shut up are over. And so, yeah, if, if you want to do some development or buy a piece of property and, and there's there's wet bits, I, I would say call an environmental company and i think the size of the company um, is kind of especially for smaller folks like i would say i wouldn't if i was a private landowner or needed some advice on wetlands i wouldn't call stantec because they're huge that's and, yeah, yeah. yeah and they're they are dealing with tc energy i mean so are we but like you know they're big companies and i think that's the beauty of of smaller environmental companies is that you know, if you call us, you're going to talk to me or Jen and we own the company and, and we're going to give you our honest opinion. And and there's other smaller companies, not just us. Like Pisces is a really great small um, fisheries focused company um, that we work with really closely. Um, and, you know, those smaller companies have the ability to help out people with maybe smaller problems. <laughs> um so and like I think to uh when it like I mean I've noticed that working with bigger companies ourselves but response time if you reach out to a company to ask for help or an inquiry or advice and they don't get back to you for a hot minute <laughs> then maybe they're not the best choice for you either because um it's it's, um, everyone's busy, but I think that, you know, smaller companies are able to, um,
0: pay more intimate attention to mm-hmm. smaller folks. Well, but there's yeah, a, so- a more direct chain of command, right? Like I'm, I'm dealing with, um, contract with the city of Edmonton. And at first I was very, very frustrated because it seemed like every single action took forever to come back to me after I sent something out or asked. And now I'm realizing it's just part of the, the procedure and protocol. There's uh, a bunch of different stakeholders involved. So it has to go to all of them before they can get an answer back. You got to go up and down the ladder. Um, so by the time you add up all the little pieces of time, it adds up to a much larger piece of time. So like you say, it sounds like um, get the right size company for the job or or for the for the person's uh, needs. Yeah, right? and I'm not saying that like
1: we work on some really big jobs too. Um, but I, I, I think that... Um... That yeah like a smaller company for a smaller situation is generally better um, suited to to those kinds of jobs and like that, yeah so in in Alberta, wetlands are a really big deal, so if anything you're doing is going to come anywhere near a wetland or a stream or anything like that you're going to need some ecological advice also there's some big um, federal pieces of legislation that folks should be aware of things like the migratory bird convention act if you are going to clear vegetation in this province between mm, march and august you're probably going to want to call an environmental consulting company because birds are federally protected and the fines that come along with disturbing a migratory bird nest um, are hefty um, so that's something a lot of people aren't aware of either, um, that, that, that is something that you're held to as a private citizen or as a company. Um, what else can I think of? Um, yeah. Um, and amphibians, like I just, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, doing anything in the water, doing anything with clearing vegetation. Um, uh, if you want to start a gravel pit or dig a borrow pit or, um, start digging you need to understand the, the requirements around registration in this province and, and you know how big your operation is going to be um, yeah
0: <laughs> Well, I th- and I think a lot of people don't realize too um, it's not just what you see like you say the amphibians uh, there's a lot of smaller uh, wildlife out there possibly rare endangered plants like li- some of those little tiny orchids you wouldn't even notice half the time so if, if you start digging before you take a good look at that you don't know what you're removing. Um, Well, and when it
1: comes to digging as well, like not that it's
0: environmentally related.
1: um, I mean, I guess it could be if it's paleontological, but um, (laughs) there is Mm -hmm. this whole piece of legislation in the province that protects historical resources. So So if you don't really... Yeah. So if you don't realize where you are in the province, and you go to dig a pit, and then the government finds out that that was actually in an area that's considered like high probability of historical resources, you might have needed an archaeologist or a paleontologist on your team before you started doing that. And... Um, Yeah, (laughs) so that's Mm -hmm. an interesting thing as well. (laughs) Um, There were like some of those um, bigger programs where they're having to excavate like, you know, part of the river bank or whatever to fix the bridge. Well, you actually like right in the guidelines doing that job, it's like you have to have a paleontologist or an archaeologist on site when you're digging because that's like, you know, the provinces, a lot of these things like these ecological or historical resources things in the province are mapped and there's resources that you can check databases you can check to know What area you're in and and what regulations apply to you, but that it it can be a daunting, um, daunting place to navigate
0: if you don't know what you're looking for in the first place. For sure. Um, And this actually might be a good segue into our next session Mm -hmm. section. Um, Just basically some some questions that each of us had come up to ask, come up with to ask you, but also in case you have questions to ask us, which once in a while happens. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think I'll start with this, these might not be in order. But I'll start with Dan, just because you started talking about the archaeological part of it, which got me thinking about Indigenous uh, populations. So, Dan, one of your your questions you had for Nadine uh, was including the, uh, the Indigenous groups and, and their services that they may offer for them. So,
2: take it yeah, away. Yeah, so, yeah, I was looking quickly, you know, scanning through your website. And yeah, let's talk about how you guys work with uh, indigenous communities. And, you know, that's something that at least for our company, you know, it's still only a year out and we've only really worked with people within the city. But of course, we want to kind of expand our scope of work and kind of work potentially with indigenous communities would be a lovely opportunity because I mean, I think there's so much crossover between, you know, working with native plants and, just the whole idea of sustainability and regenerative landscapes and whatnot. But anyway, so what I was going to ask was yeah, because you guys work with indigenous uh communities and you know, it says that you are trying to mesh western science with um indigenous values and traditional values. Like what has that process been like?
1: Um it's been a very rewarding thing to do. Um, We've got some really close relationships with, with different communities um, like first nations and, and um, Métis settlements in, in Alberta. And, I mean, we've done all kinds of things from kind of like state of the lake situations, helping do some baseline assessments of resources that are important to the community to providing um, training to the community so that, you know, helping with that capacity building in community and get people excited about doing ecological work so that they can pursue that as a career on their own if they wanted to. Um, We've helped, uh, have been reached out, or have been, um, contacted by some Métis settlements in Alberta helping do some wildlife um, research and to help support new bylaws and rules they want to come out with within their own um, communities and, and traditional lands to to have a better handle on what's happening. And we also have supported in some traditional knowledge surveys, which is it's more of just being there to record What is important to um, the First Nations folks that you're working with to be able to present it to um, whatever company might be doing work in their area? And that is always a very interesting and rewarding experience um, to just be able to have them share that information with you. There's so much trust and respect that comes along with doing that kind of work. Um, And there's always something new, it seems, when we the partners that we've been working with that they're interested in pursuing or, or you know, areas they want to expand or they want to start their own companies and and just want some support on, on what that would look like. It, it's been, we actually, our company, when we started it, we started it and the kind of flagship project that we had was a First Nations project that we're still working on now. Wow, long-term um, yeah. project. Yes, <laughs>
0: so
2: actually oh, that's it's, awesome like,
0: yeah
2: like because um yeah because i was also kind of curious too uh when you're trying to approach uh, a first nations uh community yeah like i was kind of curious yeah do they like is it more frequent that they come to you or do you go to them but yeah it kind of sounds like it's back and forth to find out what they're looking for and yeah no it's very interesting
1: we even had some really interesting conversations pre-COVID <laughs> um, with a First Nations group out of the States, um, which I'm sure you guys would find really interesting because they um, are talking about, you know, concerns with climate change and that kind of stuff. And, and they want to be um, um, self-sustaining in things like looking into growing their own traditional use plants and things like that, like being able to source that material um in from significant places within their own traditional territory, and then being able to take that and cultivate it so that they have, so they feel like they have some security and control over that traditional um, material that's very important to them. is a very interesting conversation. But then COVID happens, so um, hopefully we can reopen those conversations
0: when that has uh, ran its course, whatever that may be. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Always get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does reinforce um, some of these things that that I envision and. The relationships that i want to build too with the, the growing the native plants because um n- there's you know it's, it's kind of trendy to do the wild foraging thing right now but again with the populations going up um uh, urban areas expanding that can also place stressors on certain populations of even the, the wild native plants right so oh, try, sure. trying, trying to find methods of um cult, propagating cultivating them um more of a you know, not not necessarily in a traditional farm set setting where it's a monoculture of hey, there's 160 acres of, you know, whatever the plant might be like. Um, oh, I don't know, asters or something. But um, it, instead, you know, possibly strategically placing. Well, here's a here's a, a pollinator swath that you can still harvest from alongside something else, or. Um, you know, different plots of mixed things or or single things, but smaller plots or whatever, so that people can get their, whether it's their medicinal or their food or their, whatever they're looking for. Um, I've actually been talking with, uh, there's a group that took over, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Dragon House, the, mm, solar, no. the Solar Dragon House. It's uh, northeast of us, um, so kind of n- north, just northwest of Edmonton, I guess, on the way to uh, what's, the, well, by Callahoo or whatever. Um, anyway, they've taken over this gorgeous place that's been um, really well designed to be completely off grid, um, self-sustaining and everything. But now they're on 73 acres and they're looking at how can we get the most out of the 73 acres without doing things like you say, disturbing the wildlife, if there are any water bodies or Uh, rare plants or all this kind of stuff but still be able to have the uh, the solar house as a teaching facility for workshops that kind of thing but maybe have a uh, community garden and other things going on outside and i'm i'm really excited about oh sorry i was gonna say i'm really excited about it but this (laughs) this would be something as the discussions start to go um maybe this would be something that would be perfect for your company to go in and uh speak about maybe you could get hired to do an assessment like who, who knows because there is a real big indigenous uh, component for this group uh because it is a, a non group so this is how they're getting a lot of their fund funding as well
1: so, well and like you know we talk about like the native foraging and like talking about covid um i don't know like how, how much you guys uh get out and camp and do all the things and spend time kind of out in more rural areas but i noticed the last two years, um, people couldn't do what they were used to doing. Everyone bought an RV and headed out to go camping, but they had closed the campgrounds and man, there was some massive impacts from that in a lot of places, people random camping and leaving their garbage and ATVing through places they shouldn't be. And, and yeah, that that's definitely like, I mean, it's awesome that people are want to get outside and experience the natural world, but you know, the big population and maybe a lack of education can be very detrimental.
0: And that probably somewhat will lead into uh, Dan's next question about, um, well, obviously how how the, uh, the environment's been affected, but also how has your company been affected by COVID? Has it changed how you do business or what you're doing?
1: Well, we we're always home-based and then in march of 2020 we decided to get an office um which is really unfortunate timing so <laughs> um we opened an office or like we rented an office in atchison and it immediately had to close the doors <laughs> because you weren't allowed to be um you know in the office anymore and so i think like every other company um we've we're just I mean, we always have been rather remote, like, because of the work that we do. Most people are in the field, but um, we still have this o- the office. But most folks are working from home, so there's that. And then um, besides just, like, location, um, we did – we were working on a lot of bigger programs that have gone through various stages of being shut down and, and reopened. Um, we were lucky enough to be decently busy through COVID, but there was definitely, like – You know, CGL got shut down for a while and and we were really working out on that. And there was some other projects out in the coast in BC that got shut down for a while. Um, And then even just navigating the health and safety aspect of still wanting to be working, but trying to protect your staff, because so many of our people are out working remotely staying in camps and things like that and trying to make sure that you're pushing for safe accommodations can be really challenging because although obviously health and safety is important for a lot of companies, the bottom line is also still important. So, you know, when COVID is raging through, some camp that people are in trying to make sure that your folks aren't in a Jack and Jill because you don't want them sharing a bathroom with somebody else. They don't know. And trying to make sure that the COVID policies they have in place in these camps and stuff are, are safe and, and people are comfortable being in those situations. Um, we try to be really open with our staff and, and with communication with them um, to know if maybe that person is not comfortable working In that camp, because of COVID, and and we are definitely not going to push someone into a situation they're not comfortable with. And then, having said that, too, I mean, now a lot of these bigger companies are coming out and saying, um, "You must be vaccinated to work here." So we've had to, you know, ask like um, now in in our interview process, when we used to have to ask like, "Do you have a clean driving record and can you pass a drug test?" Now the third question is, "Are you fully (laughs) vaccinated?" Because. we can't work for some of our big clients if we don't have vaccinated staff. So that has been an interesting um, um, navigation through um, that and and, and constantly trying to be on top of all the normal health and safety stuff, but also understanding how the rules are changing. And because we work across the provinces, understanding the changes that are happening in BC and Alberta and Saskatchewan and trying to, and the Yukon also and Northwest Territories and trying to keep on top of what all of that means for us and, and how we can follow those rules, keep people safe, but still do our job.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty much across the board and it's, it's a balancing thing because you're trying to follow the rules. You're also trying to get the work done. And you're also trying to make your employees feel comfortable and safe too, because some of these, um, whether it's the restrictions or the, the regulations or whatever, um, Sometimes people not, might not be in agreement with with them, and they may want more measures. And they're like, "This is this is too too out there. I don't I don't want to be in a place if everybody's running around without masks or something, you know, whatever it is." Um, so that yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh navigation to do there to, to balance it. And so I'm sure you're finding uh, protocol and procedure is a lot more important now
1: <laughs> than well, even before, right? For sure. And like, you know, even um, like having to not not having to, but I mean, it's always that way, but um, educating staff on you can have opinions and that is just fine. But at work, you know, we have to all toe the party line. So if the rule is, Everyone needs to be vaccinated. Maybe leave your opinions about COVID at home when you go to work because we never had it happen internally for us. But I've had to make unpleasant phone calls to clients to be like, hey, I had folks on site today and you had somebody out there in a position of management that was being very cavalier about their opinion about what's going on. And there's that's not the place for it because regardless of what your opinion is if, if you're standing next to somebody who you don't realize is very much into vaccinations and mandates and all that and buddy next to you is telling you that he's got microchips in his arm um that's probably not the right place for that conversation um so that's been an interesting part of this as well as managing personalities and uh just people's attitudes towards some things, whether they're our staff or, or clients, mainly, I would say, <laughs> folks we've come in contact with in the field. But you can make someone really uncomfortable with what comes out of your mouth if you're not thinking about it first. So for that's sure. been interesting.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so into, I guess, another question here. This is kind of a combination of, of Dan and I both. Um, I don't know if, if Dan, you want to take uh, the one about the interest and support from the different stakeholders
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so, yeah, we kind of came up with something together talking about, um, yeah, have you kind of, you know, working for about five years now with Blackfly, like, have you seen any interest or uh, support from either, yeah, like, various stakeholders of so government, uh, commercial sector, private, industrial, or just any other stakeholders I'm not mentioning right now, like, in the last few years, like, has there been more interest and support for having, like, Getting your services or just the idea of like integrating more ecologically, ecological services of some kind into whatever projects are going on?
1: I think so. I think like, um, I mean, even just from um, when I started working on like, the kind of projects you work on, I mean... a lot of it does for sure come from changes in regulations with like, you know, like the changes in the wetland policy and, and you know, the changes in the um, like DFO with the fisheries act and stuff like there are more teeth ecologically in some of the, some of the regulations that the government's coming out with, because I think there's more of a push from the public that they want to see, you know, projects be more ecologically focused, but even Companies, I think, as time goes on um, and and they get more used to the regulations and, and the attitude of folks, they want to be more ecologically minded because they're aware that, first of all, it's good PR, <laughs> but um, doing a good job in the first place saves money at the end. I'm not saying that every company and every sector is like that, but um I think we do see a lot more, you know, people reaching out to us and asking for quotes for jobs that maybe five years ago they wouldn't have worried about making sure that they had an environmental monitor on site. Um, and then, like, the big, bigger centers like Calgary and Edmonton are probably two of the most, mm, like, strict places to work in the province when it comes to the environment. Like, they have taken the rules federally and provincially and just expanded on them. Um, you know, touching a wetland in Calgary is, like, I, I don't think you can do it anymore. Um, <laughs> so um, I think that um, yeah, the government's getting more more push to for that to be protect the environment and an industry. I think I mean obviously everyone is is out there to make a living and they're not going to throw money at problems they don't have. But but I do think that um, practices have changed over time and they're getting better all the time. And I mean maybe it's not happening as quickly as we would like, but I, I do think it is it is getting better and people are reaching out for more support from places like us, which is why I think there is a whole bunch more little environmental companies popping up because there's a demand for those services. Right.
0: And do you feel um, the, uh, the standards are, are increasing as well based on what you're seeing? So, you know, it used to be, okay, so we're going to reforest an area. So we're going to plunk in two different species of trees and, there, call it done? Like, is it getting a little more in depth now? Okay, we got to have more biodiversity, we've got to do soil tests, and we got, to, you know, uh, like, to what extent is that happening? Well, I mean,
1: even like, I mean, when I was little, my dad used to be a feller buncher, buncherman for like 19 years. And so even like the changes in those practices, like, you know, there's not really, you don't really see clear cut, bleh, clear cut blocks anymore. Um, you know, there's like emulation of natural disturbance, um, when they go to put the site back, you're not just you know, plowing the site and making it nice and flat. You have to, you know, rough it up, make some um, natural like topography out there to plant your trees and using native species. Um, and then the rules around um, the kind of access you're allowed to build for different um, uses, whether it's industrial or otherwise, have have changed as well. And, and so I think that the practices are getting better. And even if you look at like the... There's uh, rules for getting your reclamation certificate for oil and gas. Um, obviously, there's sites that are old, and and you know there's only so much you can do in some places. But the rules have got more strict. The newer the site is, the newer the disturbances, the more you're required to put back when it's over. You know, like you have to match what the surrounding landscape is with the trees and the vegetation, and you only have this many weeds. And you can only have you know this kind of cover. So. Um, industry is adapting as the rules change, and I, I don't think it's, it's all just um, because, um, you know, they, they um, I mean, they do it because they have to, but also they do it because they know that in the long run, it's, it's cheaper to do a good job.
0: Right. And do you find it's, I mean, it hasn't gone too far the other way, though, where um, there's so much red tape and, and stuff in place that it also prevents you from doing your job? Or do you think there's a good balance uh,
1: I I actually my most recent meeting with my MLA resulted in a meeting with AAP because I do feel like the red tape in some areas is very restrictive for a certain kind of industry like um you know it's interesting to see some big industries that get into trouble or whatever get their approvals pushed through but I know some folks that we've been working with it can take up to two years to get a water act approval like to disturb a wetland and that's not because the project is complex or anything like that it's just because there's such a backlog and a different focus in what's happening with the government that it I think it's insane that it can take up to two years to get permission to if you know mom and pop want to start a new gravel pit and they've got all their ducks in a row and everything is submitted And two years later you get a response being like well what about this and you're like wow it's been that long like it so there is some restrictive red tape for sure um, in some of the systems that are used for approvals and I think that it's really common in some areas um, for Examples to be made of smaller, like the little guy, because it's easier because, you know, mom and pop don't have a fancy lawyer. So it's easier to make an example of them and then like throw out those enforcement orders on those kinds of people than it is on, you know, someone like, yeah, big, big industry. So I do think that there is, um, red tape that, that does cause backlogs and can be very frustrating to deal with. And I'm sure it's frustrating on both sides. I have some contacts I'm close with at, at the government and the EAP and, and everyone's frustrated, um, with, with the way it, it is with a lot, with some of their approval systems and that kind of stuff, because I don't, I understand, um, seeing a delay when, there's some, you know, big ecological questions and everyone's doing work and trying to get answers. But when it's literally just because there's this many approvals in front of you and, and the system is, is not working like it should and then it's causing people to have to wait that long. I mean, that, that can be the kind of lag time that puts c- companies under.
0: Yeah, make it or break it for sure. Interesting. Okay. What do you think are some of the biggest factors that uh, determine if a client's g- going to go ahead with your services or some other ecological company services versus not? Like, is it a necessity? Well, the law states, so, so I have to, and that's, and that's what dictates. Or do you think it's a time thing? Well, as long as I can get this done within this time, then we'll do it, otherwise we won't. Um, or do you think it's a cost thing? Uh, what kind of factors do you think are at play?
1: Um, I think that, I mean, at the end of the day, companies exist to make money. So when you put out, when a company's, you know, looking for environmental support and they, you know, ask company A, B and C for a quote back for that work, um, of course, they're looking at price. So, um, you know, uh, you're not going to, I mean, not necessarily, but you, so you want to be competitive with pricing. That's really important. But also, um, I think that A lot of industries also, you know, there's a get what you get, what you pay for kind of idea as well. So it's like we want to pick somebody who has a reasonable pricing that we can afford in the context of the job that we're doing. But also we want to pick people that are qualified to do the work. And so a lot of the times if we have companies reaching out to us for proposals or if we go, you know, because there's... um, systems in place where you can look up jobs that are for bid, whether they're for Alberta transportation or the government or, you know, big programs that you can bid on and put in proposals. Um, So you're putting in your pricing, like this is how much it's going to cost. It's what we, and then, but you also need to put in your process. Like this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it to show that we um, can, we understand the job and what needs to be done so that they can see that, that we have, have that backing, but I think to a challenge for a company like us is we're small and we're relatively new. So that can sometimes, um, you know, be a bit of a deterrent, I think, for some maybe bigger projects and stuff when they look at a company like ours and say, well, you're awfully small and you don't have that much experience. And so we really need to put in the legwork to make sure our pricing and our processes um, and our approach is really solid so that we can get over that hurdle of being little
0: and relatively young. Right, and and to justify that, hey, you're worth it. This is this is why it costs this, regardless of who you're hiring. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So cool. Um, wow, we're we've been talking like crazy. It's amazing. Um, (laughs) I think maybe we'll we'll uh, kind of finish our our question period with uh, this is something that Dan and I came up with a bit as well, uh, mutually. Something fun for probably for you to answer. Um what's a project that you've worked on with Blackfly that really stands out in your mind from the others uh, for either quirky reasons, for success, for, you know, the the feeling good that you've accomplished something um, or things just went really, really bad. I don't know, but, but something that really, <laughs> what's really stands out that's like, yeah, I'm always going to remember this project.
1: Oh, (laughs) Um, well, I mean, for different reasons or different projects, for sure. Um, I think, uh, well, especially now that we're an older company, but Jen and I don't really get to work together that often, especially out in the field. And when we were just little, one of the projects we got was out in St. Walberg, Saskatchewan. And... It's kinda it was kinda cool to see because I don't think it's as bad anymore, but the environment industry used to be quite male dominated. I think that's changing, but um, we were a whole ragtag group of vegetation ecologists doing rare plant surveys out in Saskatchewan. And at one point in time, we had about 20 women. It was all women <laughs> out <laughs> in the field doing these rare plant surveys for, for like we were out there for a month in the early spring and then a month in the late summer. And that was just, it was really fun. It was a really cool place to work. And like I said, Jen and I don't get to work outside that often. So um, that was that was a really fun project with some very challenging argoing and some really neat plants. Um, And then, so that was a good project (laughs) um, for just being able to work with some really cool people. Um, And then our, our project with one of the Northern nations that we work with has been going on for a long time has been really rewarding in that we've really built a really good relationship with that community. And it's very, it's a lot of fun and we get invited out to treaty days or wellness days every year and it's just it's a it's a really rewarding experience to build that kind of relationship with with such a great group of people. So that's a definitely a unique program um, in developing those kinds of I would call them friendships with those people personally.
0: Nice. Because, cause, yeah, it's like they're inviting you into their into their lives, their backyard, their culture. Um, that's that's a big thing. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So that that has been just so rewarding and, and a lot of a lot of fun. Um and I don't know I mean there's uh, there definitely has been, challenging jobs <laughs> but um I, I wouldn't say that uh i i wouldn't want to detail any of those uh, um, you're not going to tell us
0: about you know the the time where you fell into a hole and flipped over the side by side <laughs> i'm looking for the dirt the, the, fun, the funny stories um, here too <laughs> oh
1: man i remember well actually it's not with black flag but when i first started as a vegetation ecologist at stantec i was working way up north by up by conklin and kashina lake and i swear it rained for the first 2 months that i worked i felt like it was always raining and you're out in the bush and it doesn't matter how good your rain gear is you're soaked and you're trying to like write your notes inside of a plastic bag because unfortunately the plants don't go away when it rains so yeah. as a vegetation ecologist you have to work all the time and I just I remember like being like is this what I went to school for to just like be constantly wet and cold for the <laughs> right choice yeah yeah Well that's like I would a-
0: say that's oh, right oh, go-, go ahead <laughs>
1: Oh, one project that I wasn't on personally, but that really stands out um, for me for our company is we have somebody that works for us. um, It's actually a mentor of both mine and Jenna's name is Chris Clement, um, and he um, worked. We got a project for the B.C. government doing um, this uh, this uh, caribou habitat mapping based on lichen densities in out out in the Prince George area. Um, And it was really cool because Chris and somebody else who's also a very talented ecologist um, named uh, Damien Power are both ecologists that are in their 70s. And they went out there and just killed it in the Alpine, doing that work for like a month, doing like helicopter drops and walking in the, like, it was crazy. And it was really neat. And their stories are so cool. And, um, you know, just Chris, he celebrated his 50th field season last year Woo-hoo. and wow. he wrote a book he wrote a book it's called a rugged life 50 years of Fieldwork in the canadian wilderness and i encourage any up-and-coming ecologist or any ecologist at all to buy that book and read it it's on amazon because it's just it's amazing to read chris's story and he also gives advice on like what to expect in the field and how to prepare for a field shift and it's just it's a really cool um really cool book a really cool story and it's such a privilege to be able to work with like one of my mentors he someone i met at stantech and then it's just really cool to be able to work with him now and he's just i can't keep up with that man <laughs> like
0: he's just an amazing ecologist something to aspire to that's awesome uh cool um okay so i guess for for final thoughts i'm going to ask everybody uh, more or less the same question. If there was just one thing, what would your green message be to people right now? So I'll start with Nadine and then I'll get to the other guys.
1: My green message, <laughs> um, I guess, mm, I mean, beyond, <laughs> beyond all the activism that you can do, if you're gonna be outside and if you're gonna be out in the wilderness, just leave it how you found it. It's pretty to look at and it's pretty to be a part of, but you don't need to take it home with you. And whatever you bring, you need to take home with you.
0: Even your attitude. No, (laughs) (laughs) even your attitude. (laughs) Um, How about, uh, Kevin, if you can unmute yourself, uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. What what do you think would be a a key green message from, from your standpoint?
2: okay so after like this long conversation i would say um just don't think about like buying yourself an electric vehicle Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't think about installing solar panels and those stuff yet because they're like pricey and might not work really well in this climate start thinking about digging up your turf and putting some native species to help the environment because that's cheaper and then it's easier to achieve
0: so plant a little love with some native plants <laughs> i love that Awesome. How about you, Dan? Um I don't
2: know. Just try to motivate yourself to like learn something new within the within the environment of environmentalism. <laughs> um Yeah I don't know if that really made any sense, but yeah, just like try yeah, try to push yourself to learn something new within that and then if possible trying to have conversations with people that are already versed and, you know, well-established in the field or, you know, a friend that maybe isn't. And, you know, you read an article about, you know, how to better, um, you know, create a pollinator garden in your yard or whatever. And then, yeah, share that story with, you know, your best friend or something and then being able to pass that information along and then just, yeah, continue to kind of work at that.
0: Awesome. And I think for me, uh, I mean, there's lots of points I can make. You guys have covered some of them, but to pick one, uh, just based on current events and and what we've been seeing and what we've been talking about, I'll just say, don't be afraid to do due diligence and do not just research, but proper scientific research. Question things. Don't take things as verbatim that this is what it is, but at the same time, when you go to look for those answers, make sure you're justifying those answers. Uh, Find that they're coming from good sources. um, Get thorough answers, things that you can confidently say, this this is correct or this is the most current information there is or or whatever it is versus just, like I say, um, some really right-wing or some really left-wing media source or, um, well, I don't know, things that you see on, on Facebook or the internet or whatever, or TikTok, uh, they, they might not always be true, guys. I hate to break it to you. So <laughs> you might want to just look into it a little further. And at the same time, while you're doing that, like Dan says, you, you'll probably learn something new by going down that rabbit hole. When you start to dig, it might have started off with one simple question. And as you start to dig through to find, find your answer, you'll probably find out a whole bunch more information that you didn't even know and but then you'll be a lot more educated so that you can uh fight the fight so to speak but do it in a uh legal proper way by communicating with legal methods you know so yeah on that note um Nadine did you have any questions for for any of us or all of us as a group or um I don't think I really have
1: any questions. I just really enjoyed getting to just chat ecology for a straight hour and a half. That was, I know, that's
0: it's really... crazy. I said I said an hour, and then here we are. Oops, we just talking <laughs> away. So good thing we didn't get specifically on the plants or something, or it would be just out <laughs> of it. Good for the day, thanks. Um, all right, so I just wanted again to say thank you very much to Nadine Clifton for being a guest on our show. She is with uh, Blackfly Environmental Services. And um, again, a little plug for you, where once more can people get a hold of you and your company, whether it's phone, email, uh, Facebook, uh, website, uh, how do we connect with you?
1: So our website is www.blackflyenvironmental.com. Um, and i we have a contact, um, page on there where you can reach out to us by completing a form, or you can call us at 587-853-0769 and listen to the very exciting, just taped recording of, of all the <laughs> different folks that you could talk to. Um, Yeah.
0: And just keep in mind, you're not ordering pizza. You're actually calling right. Blackfly. Oh, we,
1: I guess we do have, we do have the Facebook and the Instagram and the LinkedIn. Um, but I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know. I probably should have looked it up beforehand. Like I, I don't know what our handle is or whatever for that stuff. Chances, but chances
0: are, though, if you if you just search Blackfly Environmental will come up. You'll yeah, see, it. I'm pretty sure that's how just that Just look works. for the fly, look for the fly. and you'll Just age it.
1: myself by saying I don't know how to use <laughs> these things, but
0: yeah. Okay. Well, it's also time, right? Like I can't, uh, I, I can manage Facebook and my website kind of, but I can't get beyond into Instagram and, and all of that. like, I just don't have the time resources to do it. I can totally see why people hire others full time just to do social media and the other things. So <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, But on that note, again, thank you very much. Thanks again to our trio. And uh, this has been another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. And uh, please subscribe, like us, share us, comment. I don't even care if it's a bad comment. I just want to get some engagement from you guys. So uh, let us know something. And you can either respond to uh, either of our websites, fescue.ca or mmgardens.ca, or you can find us on Facebook as well. Until next time. Keep it regenerative.